Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host of Real Leaders. And as is often the case, Real Leaders is brought to you by Merge Lane. That's like a merge lane on a highway. Merge Lane is an investment fund focused on incredible companies that also happen to have one woman in leadership. If you're interested in learning more about how to be funded by Merge Lane or how to be a part of our unique seven-day fundraiser program this fall, please visit MergeLane.com. And now, on to the next episode of Real Leaders. Today on Real Leaders, I am thrilled to welcome two of my most valuable teachers and dearest friends, Jim Dethmer and Diana Chapman, co-founders of the Conscious Leadership Group. Jim and Diana, thanks for being with me today. Mm, I'm very happy to be with all three of us. Uh Me too. Big happiness. So I mentioned this phrase, Conscious Leadership Group. This is the leading organization bringing conscious leadership into companies and organizations around the world. If you've never heard of CLG, which is how we will refer to them likely going forward in this podcast, pause right now and go visit conscious.is. That's www.conscious.is. While you're at it, go to Amazon and look up the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. And those are two pathways into understanding the background and today's story of conscious leadership group. So Jim and Diana, I'd love to know the story of how you met. (laughs) I'm happy to tell that story. It brings me great delight to tell that story. It happened about 20 years ago. Uh, My life partner and wife, Debbie and I, were newly married at that point and decided that we wanted to go to a workshop to deepen our connection. So we found the Hendricks, Drs. Gay and Kathleen Hendricks, and we went to one of their workshops, which was in Ojai, California. We're these kind of conservative Midwestern Chicago folks. So we go out to Ojai and we show up early for the beginning of the workshop. We show up at this building, and from the outside, when we pull up in the car, I can hear like a wild ruckus, people making noise and screaming. I think there was even music, and it was like a wild party of some sort going on in the middle of the day. And as I walk up to the door, I look in, and there are people in all kinds of costumes. One of the first people who greeted me had on a pig's nose. And so what it was was it was the – leadership of the Hendricks Apprentice Group having what we now know was a persona party, one of our favorite things to do, where you bring one of the parts of yourself that you want to kind of bring more out into public that's a little bit hidden. And I looked in this room and there was this really chaotic, wild, playful scene going on. And I, at one and the same time, wanted to run away and hide and was attracted to it. And we stayed. Now, I didn't officially meet Diana then. It was a few hours later because Debbie and I were new to the work. And one of the requirements was that if you were new to the work, you had to kind of go to a pre-session that in this case was led by Diana and one of our other dear friends and a third person who were leading the opening introduction to coupleness. So my first introduction to Diana was really to sit under her teaching and coaching as she facilitated couples work. And it was incredibly powerful for me and us. It really changed the dynamic of our relationship in deeply meaningful ways. And we really got tremendously involved after that and very deeply connected to Diana. Diana, do you remember your first impression of Jim? I do. I I remember that, um, in the couples group that he and Debbie were so open to learning. And I was so attracted to that. And afterwards they said, you know, we did really value this work and we're thinking about joining this apprentice program with you and the others. And I remember just being a kid in a candy store, like, yes, yes, yes. And jumping up and down and using all of my gifts of persuasion to argue any reasons why they wouldn't join. And they did. And we all became fast friends. And one of my favorite moments, just the first time Jim showed up for the apprentice meeting, he came as a persona of the guy who got it all right, the good student. And he had um, memorized much of the manual and were telling us all stuff we hadn't even learned yet. And I just thought, oh, thank God I got him in 
this group, I'm going to learn so much from him. And that's the beginning of, of a couple of decades of learning so much from Jim. Uh, it's a great story. So just to pause for a second, for those people listening who have never heard of a persona party, just because this is, I think, one of the most revealing and valuable tools of the work you all have birthed uh, in concert with the Hendricks that you now do with companies and organizations around the world. What's one benefit of getting together with colleagues or friends and playing out one of your personality behaviors all the way? What's the learning from that? Well, my experience is that a lot of us either disown parts of ourselves or we know we have it, but we really don't accept it. And so being able to be uh, with a group of people that we collaborate with and be more possibilities of ourselves by letting in parts out that we don't usually let out or letting out parts that we haven't accepted uh, creates a lot of inner freedom and then that inner freedom allows us all to collaborate, in my experience, more effectively. So, um, and learn to have compassion for one another when we see each other challenged by being our full selves. Thank you for that. So you started with the Hendricks in this couples context, but I know that both of you, I, I either quickly or already had a practice, a coaching and consulting practice with companies. Can you each talk a little bit about how you ended up doing a lot of this work with companies first individually? Sure. Uh, by the time I first met the Hendricks, I was already uh, full-blown into an executive coaching team development practice uh, with another partner, a guy named Dr. Jack Skeen. And we were doing meaningful work, largely in what I would call a more traditional mindset, you know, competency-based profiling of jobs and job positions and, you know, getting teams aligned around core purpose and core values and uh, kind of the Jim Collins work. And we were having a great time. We did some what I would call deeper insight work because Jack, my partner, was a clinical psychologist and we used a psychological instrument to kind of open people up. So we always were doing things that were a little bit mainstream and a little bit provocative in the best sense of the word that created conversations. And when I found the Hendricks material and the other materials that Diane and I have come across over the years, first and foremost, I adopted them individually. All the work that I've done in the world and now all the work we're doing in the world is first and foremost, simply a laboratory for me to keep growing in consciousness. I mean, that's a cornerstone of everything we do. So when I started to learn about the Hendricks work, I implemented it in my own life. And then the way it works with me is once I'm doing something myself, then I want to offer it to other people. So then we started offering the tools like a persona party, or it was first from uh, Gay and Katie Hendricks that I heard about the idea of being above the line and below the line. And these tools started to make their way into my work with teams and organizations in little ways, even before Diane and I decided to partner, they were part of what I was up to. And Diana, how about you? Yeah, Jim spent many more years before I jumped into the business world. I think I got involved through the YPO organization. Uh, somebody had invited me here in San Francisco to come co-lead a group, and that group ended up hiring me, and um, I ended up going into many of their companies. And so that was my first initial way I brought uh, a lot of this work into businesses. And YPO is Young Presidents Organization? Yes. We've, we've taken this work a lot through YPO. It's been a great place for us. And many, many of those leaders have then brought CLG in. And Diana, for you, how would you describe your early practice? Was it this work that you had begun doing 20 years ago? Did you have other business influences? How would you characterize your entry into the business world? Oh God, I had no business experience. None. I, I, remember, I remember sitting with a group of people and they were talking about Q2 and I didn't know what Q2 meant. Uh, I had to go <laughs> and Google what is Q2. I was, I was a stay-at-home mom and I knew I wasn't there because I had business knowledge. I was there because I could tell them whether they were doing their business from a state of trust or a state of threat. And that was my superpower. And that's why I was in the room. But I had to, I've, over the years, I've learned a lot about business because I've 
set in on lots of conversations, but that's not how I got in there. Yeah, in some ways, I think probably that was a huge advantage for you at the start of your work with companies. And it's funny, I never knew, you never told me that story. And I have one of those stories because you know I practiced law before I went to work at a business. And the first day I worked at a business, I was asked to create a P&L. And I thought that was one word, P&L. You know, just spell it, you know, P-E-E, whatever. And uh, I had to call one of my, quote, rabbis to find out what a P&L was. And then I found out that in order to, to do a P&L, I had to do it in Excel. And I didn't, I had never as a lawyer opened Excel, the program. So I had to go buy Excel for dummies on my first day at Discovery Communications, the large television company, to learn how to do a mini P&L for an acquisition. So we have that one in common. Um, Sue, so I do so, want to say something, because this is important. Um, at least it's important to me. We still regularly say to clients, we don't know anything about your business. I say it all the time. You know, I've worked with, you know, leading tech firms in the world or major healthcare organizations or large manufacturers. And I've said to every one of those CEOs, I don't know anything about your business. And furthermore, I know very little about business in general. And that's actually one of the cornerstones of the work we do. Now, Diana and I can say that because we don't have a lot of experience. You can't say that anymore because you've started businesses, you've run businesses, you're facile with all the language and the terminology and all that, which is one of your great abilities. That's still not true about us because what we're saying to people we work with all the time is you are the subject matter expert in your business. If you want consultants to work with you on the content of your business, go call Bain or McKenzie or somebody like that. We're not that. Our expertise is helping you understand the consciousness from which you're running the business. And if we help you get clear about that, so you develop mastery of that, then you're going to be released to your full potential and all of your content mastery and experience and subject matter expertise will be able to come fully into the world. So I say that because we're really a different consulting firm. We don't know anything about your business. <laughs> That's great. And I think that really syncs up, Jim, with this concept of context versus content that I understand is an, is an issue and still an area that you put some focus on. Can you explain that dichotomy, you or Diana, just explain that dichotomy for a moment? Sure. It's so simple. Content is the normal stuff we're talking about in our organizations day in and day out. So if you go to any meeting, if you go to your Monday afternoon stand-up meeting where the leadership stands around and they check in and everybody's going to share what's going on in their department. So we're going to talk a little bit about supply chain management and, you know, the CFO is going to give an update on cash flow and somebody else is going to talk about hiring or, or we've got this particular breakdown in uh, one of our departments Anything that addresses who, what, where, when, and why is content. It's what people talk about 99% of the time. That's content. Context, this is a funny way to say it. We say it's how you're talking about the content. And it's real simple for us. We use that simple little tool. You're either talking about it from above the line, a state of trust, or from below the line, a threatened state. You're either talking about this from presence, being totally here now and not triggered, or you're talking about it in a state of mild to moderate fear. And depending on how we're having the conversation above or below the line, it's going to either lead to a creative or co-creative experience, or it's going to lead to drama. And drama, in our view, is one of the major sludge creators in all organizations. It costs money and time and rework and all that. So when we're working with individuals, coaching them or teams or whole organizations, we'll ask them, what do you want to explore today? 
And they're going to bring a content-based issue, which is perfect. That's their job. And very quickly, after we get clear on what the content is, we're going to want to start to talk about context. Are you being with us from trust or fear? from threat or safety and security, from creativity or drama. And then that, as we say in one of our videos, begins the great conversation. Because then we're going to explore, would you be willing to change the context to get a different result with the content? We say all the time, if you don't face and address and shift context, content or the problems of your business will keep recycling and recirculating. And we go into firms all the time that have been around the same issue over and over and over again, because they're trying to bring a content solution rather than a context solution. Thank you for explaining that. I have a giant smile on my face just listening to your explanation there. It's just so nice to hear you speak about that. So I'd like to talk a little bit about both. We're going to use a little content here just to tell the story and some context about how you two came together and created what has become a substantial business in bringing the work of conscious leadership to companies and organizations. So I think, well, you all help me, how far back this conversation goes where you started working together with business leaders, either in your own groups or inside their companies. <laughs> you know, so I sent you an email when you said this. I said, I'm a disaster at this part of it. So hopefully Diana can remember because... Well, I mean, I have a decent memory of it, but I don't good. know if... Yeah, I don't... Because I, I, well, when I sort of... My little part of my, my vantage point came in. But Diana, was the first initiative you two did together the Conscious Leadership Group forums? Yes. We did one YPO group together. Jim had invited me to come do something there. But I think after that... I had this hint, maybe about 10 years ago, that if Jim and Kaylee Klemp, who's another uh, coach that we highly respect, and I came together, that I had some thought that something would come of it. So I invited the two of them to come together because I knew we we're all working with YPO, we're all working with business leaders, we all care about conscious leadership and other things, other teachers that we'd worked with. So let's come together and see what we might create. And that was the beginning of a conversation around the idea of us creating content together and then potentially presenting it together. And then there was a lot of resistance in the beginning, I think, for us to come under the same umbrella or to let go of our individual names and that were our business names, because I think it was vulnerable. And yeah. we got encouraged actually by a lot of people who worked with us to say, hey, we think you two would get more value and so would the world if you came under the same umbrella. At some point, we finally said yes, and that was the birth of CLG. Right. I mean, it's worth noting here that you all, each one of you had a substantial individual business working with businesses and individuals and couples. And uh, so it, it really was a material decision right around that time, or just, I guess it's before it, because there were three of you that co-authored the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, what I consider the sort of the cornerstone book in this space. Can you talk a little bit about the process of launching the book? Why did you launch it? How did you launch it? How did you publish it? And how meaningful has it been to have that book? Well, we wrote the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership as a document. I think, I think actually, didn't we write that, Jim, in like two days or something with Kaylee? It just flew out of us. Certainly the outline did. I think the writing of the actual content took a while with editing and so on and so forth. But, you know, remember, basically we got together. First, this is important, too. We got together largely because we wanted to play together. We liked, loved, and respected each other and said, Let's just get together and hang out. And, of course, the, the means by which we're going to hang out is creating something together. So the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership was basically, if we were going to say something to the world around the subject of leadership, what would we say? 
Mm-hmm. And so we generated these 15 commitments. And, you know, so many people, Sue, I think you were one of the people early on who said, you guys cannot write a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, right? I mean, there are seven habits of highly effective people or four dysfunctions of a team or five or whatever it is. Who's got 15? <laughs> but our deal was, we weren't thinking at that point, we want to be authors who sell tens of thousands of books or millions of books or whatever. We just want to say what we have to say. And that was kind of everything we had to say. And that fell out of us very quickly. And then, you know, we had a blast writing the book together and, um, and uh, getting supported to bring the book into the world. Diana can talk about how we got it published and what's happened there. But again, it, it was rooted in three people who had profound respect for each other, deep devotion to consciousness personally, who again, wanted to Kind of like with my kids and now grandkids, you know, you have these play groups. We just kind of wanted to be a play group together who could experience and express our creativity. And I say that because that's still a cornerstone of everything we do. First and foremost, we want to be practitioners and we want to be playmates who are doing something that totally enlivens us. And that was true when Kaylee Diane and I got together and it's still true today. And by the way, I think it's one of the big things we bring to companies is would you be willing to treat this as play and be passionate about what you're playing with in life and live in this state of authentic creativity and transparent relationship? That's just all the stuff we've been doing. And now we just export it to companies all over the world. (laughs) That's, that's wonderful. So about this time, I, met you you both and I just want to share this in the interest of full and fair disclosure and I got a chance to play with all three of you in an early relatively early intensive that you were running so my recollection is at this time you were doing these public events where certain vetted people could come and participate in at that time I think four-day intensives with you and they were individual leaders CEOs primarily that came and and worked with the three of you and I think at that same time you all were assembling this book Um, so so I was I think that's right now is about 10 years ago that I attended my first conscious leadership group four-day intensive. And it utterly transformed not only my leadership, but in the end, or we're not in the end yet, I hope, but in the middle, totally my life. So as you were doing these initial groups as as a trio, how was that contributing to the creation of the book and vice versa? How were those things playing together? Hmm. Hmm. Well, we hadn't written, when we met you, we hadn't even thought about doing the book yet. Um, we just had the, the handout. And, and then uh, I, I remember going to see Kate Ludeman, who was a mentor of mine, and showing her all this content that the three of us had created out of play. We didn't have a goal. We just riffed. And I said, look at all this cool stuff we riffed on. And she said, oh. And she pointed to that 15 commitments handout and said, that, write a book on that. And so... Mm-hmm. I think um, we started to talk about that book. We all had an agreement about the fact that we would do it. And we assigned each other chapters and started to bring content to one another and edited it. And the book, again, very easily got created. We didn't have, I don't even think we had deadlines. We just let it happen. And then lo and behold, I think about a year and a half later, that book was out in print. And you do all self-publish that book? We did. We self-published it. We got a lot of advice and decided to self-publish. And we're really glad we did. We've sold probably over 60,000 copies now. And the book continues to sell more each quarter than it did the last. And it's really a, a, a book on that gets sold by word of mouth alone. I, I cannot believe the number of people who come to me. And I, it just happened the other day. My boyfriend's close friend, who is the founder and CEO of a company in the Bay Area, reached out to me and said, I was just reading my very favorite leadership book. And I, I mentioned in one of the chapters, and he didn't know anything about that connection. And he said, and I just found you in chapter whatever it is, seven or 11 or something. Mm-hmm. So I, I cannot believe the number of people organically that tell me that. Um, and so you're happy with your decision to self-publish? Yes. Yeah, I am. I'm very happy. Just for reference, I mean, my understanding is if a nonfiction book in the business world sells 25,000 copies, 
that is an extreme success. So the fact that this book years later still has this level of momentum and has sold as many copies as you just shared with us is just extraordinary. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm just tickled about it. Okay, so you're running these groups, you're still working with companies individually, and you decide, Jim and Diana, you two decide to form this business and to give up, I mean, give up, that's really a, a bit of an overstatement because you obviously still have your names. Oh, it did uh, feel it, like give up. It really yeah. did feel like give up my own individual identity for something greater. It, it did, mm-hmm. it was, I was, I felt very vulnerable doing it. Do you recall what the main decision was, the main contributing factor that led you to say yes to that? I think it was a recognition that I I could have more impact if I let go of my own individual needs and stood for something greater and shared resources and shared voices. And yeah, so just, it was about the decision to want to do good, to make impact. Hmm. Jim, do you remember Yeah, there are several things. One was, I didn't want my energy divided. I wanted, you know, this occurred gently over time. We had lots and lots of conversations around this, lots of them. And what became clear to me was, I wanted all of my energy flowing in one direction, not two, not three. It's just my preference to live life that way. It's part of what it means to me to be in a state of integrity. So it was like, I don't want to have my energy divided or bifurcated in any way. That was a big part. And then the, uh, another really meaningful part for me was there was an ease of coming together. There was a lack of duplication. <laughs> we could just get everything unified under one brand, for example, under one accounting system, under one set of processes. I love the simplicity of that. And then people who we trusted told us this would be true, but it really has been the case that, you know, the whole really is much greater than the sum of the parts. And I think it does have to do with the energetic vibration or um, synergy that occurs when we threw ourselves totally in. And then over the years, others have thrown them, themselves totally in. And with every time that happens, there's a new kind of um, movement to a new level of impact. Mm -hmm. I I love that what you said, Jim. And I also do think there were many people, I think, including you, Sue, who really told us, we think this is best. And I don't think, I think I knew something, but I couldn't fully see what you all saw. And there was just that willingness to trust that the feedback that was coming was something to listen to. And I think it was um, trusting in such a friendly universe that uh, said, let's just go where there's a, the, the collective seems to be pointing. And that was an important part for me as well. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. So for the folks who don't know that much about the inside of the business that is called Conscious Leadership Group, can you just share a little bit about what Conscious Leadership does? Yeah, sure. So our organization is here to support people in learning to practice being a conscious leader. And we do that in several different ways. So we offer speaking. So we speak to groups and organizations. We offer team consulting, organizational consulting. We provide forums and forums are groups of people who come together, 10 usually in size, who practice monthly with one of us as a facilitator to live the 15 commitments. We also offer one-on-one coaching and we provide training. So we have intensives where people can come and deep dive with us both organizational leaders and coaches who want to train with us. Thank and you. The, the other thing we do is this, this hasn't changed from the very beginning. We still love to create tools, materials, and, uh, People can go to the website, which you referenced, and we we made a decision a while ago, which was a fun decision, to open source all of our materials. They're all there. You can take them, use them, uh, have them, do as you do with them in the world. And part of that is sourced in, we still love to create cool stuff. Yeah. So another way we support people is just provide individuals with content that they can use to grow themselves. 
So you made this decision a couple of years ago to make all of your materials available. Uh, if anyone wants to go to conscious.is on the blog and do a search, I think you talked about it as open source. You can search and find that blog post about how you made that decision. It's a beautiful post. And one of the things I notice is you, you have the two of you, and then you have a team of CLG team members, consultants, coaches, speakers, and you all work together as a group. And a substantial amount of material is available to the public. What do you think is the special add-on that bringing in somebody from CLG gives a company or organization that creates the kind of transformation that I know and you know you all are able to create with a company that works with you that really pertains directly to you two or the people that you've elected to work with at CLG? Well, I'll tell you what's coming up for me just in this moment. I don't think I've ever said it this way. I think all three of us have experienced this many times in our relationship with each other, in the, in stuff we've done together, and then, of course, bringing into companies. When we show up, a different conversation occurs, whether it's a partnership in a business between you know two founding partners of an entrepreneurial startup or whether it's a team or um, even if it's just an individual that we're coaching. When we get involved in an individual team or an organization's life, a different conversation occurs. And what I would mean by that is there's a deeper level of self-awareness that shows up. So we bring this capacity to create a space that supports people to become more self-aware, both individually and collectively. And, you know, the Center for Creative Leadership said that of the 67 core competencies, four of them are more important than all the rest. And the first one is self-awareness. And the second one is learning agility. That's so we bring a different conversation that helps individuals and organizations become more self-aware, which is no easy thing. We're protecting ourselves from our blind spots for lots of good and legitimate reasons. But when we show up, more self-awareness shows up. And then that's followed by more self-acceptance and quite frankly, compassion for others. So the more self-awareness there is, the more self-acceptance there is. And that starts to create an energy, a momentum that really allows for completely different possibilities. So there's much that is our secret sauce, but something around when we walk into a room, a different conversation begins. Yeah, that really resonates with me, Jim. And as you both know, uh, thanks to you, I do a lot of this work in the world. And I've really been tuning into that. You all talk a lot about purpose, and I've been tuning in a lot to that, that thread. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is frequently people want to know what the outcomes will be, what the deliverables will be of bringing in an outside coach or an outside resource. And Obviously, anyone who hires CLG or one of your team members is going to get an answer like you just shared, and they're going to say, yes, that sounds like enough. And most of your people come back to you for years and years and years. I know that. And so they have the experience and they know that it's enough. But I'm wondering if over time, do you continue to get protests? That's not enough. That's not business relevant. Uh, that sounds kind of out there. Do you still hear those protests or have they sort of faded away? <laughs> well, I would say we don't hear those protests from individuals, teams, and organizations that have engaged us for very long because all of a sudden they can see in palpable ways the true benefits of being engaged in a different kind of conversation. But if I go to the other side of the continuum, Sue, you know, I spent a decade working in the financial world, bringing consciousness to the financial world. And if there's a world that is driven by metrics and clear ROI and stuff like that, it's that world. So, you know, I could go to the other extreme and say, if here's some of the things that are going to happen, large organization, if you bring us in, there's going to be less unwanted turnover because you are going to become a place to work and you're going to start to win the talent war. So less 
unwanted turnover. You're going to start to win the talent war, which is the big deal. Because more and more, especially younger people, they want to come to workplaces that are different, that have a sense of purpose, of meaning. They want to come to a place where there is authentic vulnerable, real conversation occurring. They want to come to a workplace where they're empowered to work and live in their zone of genius. One of the terms we got from Gay Hendricks that's in our book. So at a practical level, less unwanted turnover, you're going to start to become a desired place to work. A number of the firms we've worked for the for years are regularly voted best places to work in Chicago or best places to work in the tech industry in the world. Well, that gives you a leg up on competing for the best talent, which is, you know, the great scarce resource. Another thing that's going to happen, and there are groups now doing legitimate studies on this. We've never done it, but people are doing it related to our materials and our work. I think you're going to have less healthcare costs, less sick days. You're going to drive down healthcare costs because the amount of time people are living in a stress-induced environment decreases when they start doing our work. And stress, as we know now, creates all kinds of illness. So less unwanted turnover. You're going to win the talent war. There's going to be less um, healthcare costs and higher employee engagement. Now, employee engagement's a funky term, and there's some <laughs> discussions about whether that's a good metric. But what it simply means is higher engagement of people in what they're up to. So I'm giving you practical things. I would also say that whatever markers you have around effectiveness and efficiency are going to go up because people are not distracted by the bullshit of drama. Just our fifth commitment is all around uh, beginning to remove gossip from the organization and replace it with real conversations that help people resolve issues. If you look at the amount of time and energy and money that gets wasted because of gossip and indirect conversations that don't really resolve issues, the efficiency and effectiveness cost is huge. So now I'm going to the other side rather than just when we show up, there's a cool conversation because I agree with you. That can sound touchy feely. It can sound kind of kumbaya, blah, 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 blah. Our clients wouldn't say that, but it can sound that way. So then I go over to the other side. I say, you're going to win the talent war. You're going to have less unwanted turnover. You're going to have more engagement. You're going to, you know, have more effective, more efficient decision-making processes. There's going to be less rework. Now I'm talking about hard edge things that business leaders really want to get going, not to mention your creativity engine is going to go up. And everybody knows we've got to have more creativity and more innovation. But in organizations that operate below the line in threatened fear-based states, that's not the brain state that's conducive to creativity and innovation. So when we show up, creativity and innovation shows up as well. So I'll pause there, but there's a riff for you on what I think are the quote-unquote practical things that happen. Thanks, Jim. The, there's one thing that you didn't say in that riff that I remember being very struck by early. When I found you all, I was running a tech company. And the thing that really transformed my view of this work is a reference that you made to people finding a greater level of fulfillment in their lives. <laughs> and when I heard it, I remember hearing it for the first time and thinking, oh, you know, no one in business would buy that. And I now, reflecting back, you know, 10 years later, think, how incredible that as the CEO of a venture-backed company, I actually for a moment doubted whether happiness of my workforce was relevant to the success of my business. <laughs> and so I'm so glad you brought that to my attention. Mm. So I want to talk about this business as it's emerged over the last few years. And Diana, I'm curious what are areas that have exceeded anything you could have wildly imagined and areas where you found a higher degree of difficulty than you would have imagined? I would say, you know, I did imagine that it was going to be popular and I imagined it would get more and more popular each year. And that is what's happened. And I'm just more interested in how does it all want to unfold and less interested in, trying to push it. So, you know, my personality style can get pushy sometimes. And I've just learned to 
just it's happening and I don't have to make it happen. And so I've dropped a lot of expectations, but I'm just delighted with how many people are engaging with this material. I think the thing that most just makes me so happy is to hear, you know, that somebody out there read the book and they started bringing it into their organization just on their own. And they are all practicing and reading the book and are super happy with the results that that just delights me to see that we don't have to do much of anything, just get the book out there and it starts to make change happen. So I, I think at the beginning we wondered, could Jim and I, could we train a lot of other people to do what we do? And we weren't sure that that was going to happen. And we have found that not only could we train them, but they're phenomenal. They're making huge impact out there. And so I think that's one of the places that I've been the most delighted was knowing that we can support people like you and others who have taken this work and are now broadening it widely. Yes, I'm very grateful for that myself. And just anything, what comes up? One thing that has been a little more challenging, maybe not now, but over the last five years. Well, definitely, I think for me personally, and I think others on our team would say the same thing. It's been challenging sometimes to bring this work to some of the folks in the tech population who have very analytical personality styles, who want data, who are skeptical and more introverted. And sometimes I have left a team where, you know, there were a lot of software developers. And I remember once going down into the parking lot of the building and crying afterwards, just feeling so downtrodden about my lack of effectiveness um, with that group and learning that I had to find different ways to bring the material to them. And I've I've had to iterate a lot, but that's been, I think, a challenge is learning how to meet the needs of a wide variety of people in learning how to digest and try on these concepts so that they can decide if they're valuable or not. Thanks for sharing that. And for those, there may be people listening right now who still are listening, who have that mindset. And I wonder, Diana, is there one thought you could share right now that you've learned from working with people who may be more problem solution oriented, more linear thinkers, more analytical about one way, even a small window where they could see the value of this conscious leadership work? I think one of the things I've learned is to communicate that I don't have answers and truths. I don't, these aren't truths. This is a game we made up. And we, other people in the past made up games and shared them with us and we tried them on and we liked the games. And so having people understand, we've just made up games and we're realizing that when we play them and others play them, it seems to really give us the results we want. And so the invitation is try on the game without having it to be the truth or right or scientifically validated and just see if it worked for you too. Did you like playing the game? And if so, great, keep playing. And if not, trust you, you'll go play the games that you like to play that get you the results you want. Diana, thanks for sharing that. What I've seen is there are people who have been resistant to this work who years later are some of your biggest fans. I imagine that's something you've noticed across the coverage area for conscious leadership. Is that how you see it? Yes. I think that um, there are people who are just naturally skeptical and for good reason and can have a lot of resistance, but with that skepticism, they do try things on slowly over time. And many of them discover that there's value for them and become some of our biggest advocates and, that's always really fun to see. And I've learned to relax and let the skepticism be in the room, welcome it, trust it. And in being with skepticism that way, I find that um, everybody relaxes more and everybody learns more. So we always say to leaders, you can, they, that's one of their concerns is, I'm afraid I'm going to have skeptics in the room. And we say, of course you will. And that's natural and normal. And can you welcome skepticism? And I've heard you say that before, and I think this is counterintuitive, so I just want to spend another moment on it. Whether it's bringing conscious leadership into an organization or bringing anything into an organization, 
there is a fear of that one or two skeptics that might quote unquote ruin it for everyone. I know you would never say that, but that, that where that's the fear. And you've shared with me that you think skeptics are your best ally in a group. Just one more thought on how that's true for you. Well, everybody's skeptical a little bit inside when we're, especially when we're learning new things. And so when somebody in the group really takes that on as a role, it actually, I notice, helps the rest of us relax because we start to say to that person, hey, don't be so skeptical. And then what we're really doing is say to ourselves, don't be so skeptical. And so that one person's skepticism tends to create a little more openness and curiosity for everybody else in the room. I do want to add something to that just as, as a yes and. So skepticism, if you understand it in its etymology is somebody who is questioning from a place of wanting to learn. Now, their structure is, I doubt this. I can see the reasons this isn't true, but I'm still in conversation. I'm still exploring. Skepticism is a tremendously value. We, you know, we've taught teams over the years to institutionalize it by literally creating the role of the devil's advocate so that you're in a team meeting and all of a sudden the group starts to get into groupthink and everybody's moving in the direction of all the benefits of this new product. Take the devil's advocate hat, literally make a cap that says devil's advocate. Somebody picks it up and puts it on their head, and their job is to tell you all the reasons it's a bad idea. So you institutionalize skepticism and devil's advocacy into the room. Very, very healthy. Now, here's what isn't healthy. Cynicism. Cynicism is a calloused, closed heart. It's a mind that isn't open because it's committed to its own righteousness. Now, I say that to say, you know this, Sue, because you started to allude to somebody we write about in our book who we literally kicked out of a training because that person wasn't skeptical. That person was cynical. And cynicism is toxic to organizations. Skepticism is life-giving. We fire clients all the time. Now, we don't fire them for being skeptical. We cheerlead that. But if they are calloused and closed to such an extent that there's no willingness to learn, we fire them. And by the way, that person that we write about in the book, we kicked out of the training, go now, whatever, five, six, seven years later, that person is a huge advocate of this work. Huge. You know, started multiple tech companies, been incredibly successful, and is bringing this work into organizations that they are leading. But first, we had to confront, we believe, from love and compassion, but confront nonetheless their cynicism. There's no place for cynicism in organizations, gang. Leaders need to cut that out of the organization because it's corrosive. Skepticism, you want to support. So I say that that's to say wonderful. fire clients as much as they fire us. And that's one of the reasons we fire them. Right. And I want to just mention, there are probably coaches and consultants that are listening to this podcast. And I think they may be thinking when they hear you say that you fire clients, they may be skeptical of that claim. And I have seen this in action. And I so appreciate that you, you all talk and your commitments about this mindset of abundance and how your willingness to pick and choose the companies and the people you most want to engage with is something that you live all the way through your business life. And it really, to me, correlates with a mindset of abundance. And I just want to acknowledge that as being a tremendous lesson you've taught me about creating exactly the work life and the life that you want from that consciousness. Mm. Mm. So for the two of you working together, one of your commitments is around creating clean agreements. Could you give us a couple examples of agreements you have with each other? Hmm. 
Well, let me start with a very practical one. I say this all the time. Um, like we had an agreement to start our call with you at the bottom of a particular hour of the day. And I got on to the platform we're using, Zoom, I think it is, at like a minute or two ahead of that prescribed time. As soon as I hit, boom, join, Diana was sitting there. Here's the way I know Diana to be around her agreements. Agreement is anything you've said you would do or anything you say you won't do. Just her agreement around time. If it would have been, by the way, Sue, I see you exactly the same way. You operate the same way. If it would have been three minutes past our designated start time, (laughs) I would have thought one of the following. I messed up and got the day wrong. Or like in Diana's case, I would think something's wrong. Like, like, you know, her, you know, her internet's down or, you know, she got sick or something like I so trust her and you Sue both because we were buddies and we playmates in this world together. I so trust your impeccability around your agreements. And I just give an example of time, which most people think is a small one, but they transgress it all the time in organizations. And it creates tremendous sludge that around our agreements, around time, money, speaking the truth to each other, or we'll say, uh, hey, I'm going to get this done by Tuesday at five. And we're working with our partners on creating something to go out to a client. I know it will either be done exactly the way Diana said it would be done when she said it would be done, or she'll renegotiate. And she'll give me a heads up and say, hey, I want to renegotiate. And I want to, instead of do it Tuesday by five, I want to do it Thursday by five. And I want to tell you the freedom and the stress-free aliveness that get, that gives me to know that everybody on our team, there are now about what 16 of us or so who are involved in our organization, everybody on our team, I trust to operate that way. So there's no need to follow up, to check in, to hold accountable, none, because I so trust everybody to be impeccable around their agreements. And if somebody isn't impeccable around their agreements, we clean that up. So there's no extra energy spent. I would just start with that as a toss for what agreements mean to me and how the kind of agreements we've made with each other. Diana, do you have anything to add on the topic of agreements you have with Jim? Well, I think we're always, you know, we're always tuning in. So we were just leading an event a few weeks ago and I was noticing, I I think I said something like, I have this thought, Jim, that you're more frustrated with me than you're letting me know. And would you agree to give me very specific feedback? And we talked about it and he said, absolutely. Yes. And then he said, I'd also like something in return. And we're iterating along the way of how can we make this even more exquisite? Um, And so we're finding what are the little agreements or big agreements, regardless of size that would allow us to really relax deeply into a state of trust um, in ourselves and with one another. And for each of you, as you've been working together, obviously you've changed a bunch, I imagine, since this project began. What's one key update in how you're operating in the world for each of you that relates to the growth and the next phase of CLG? Well, I I could tell you about me. So, Diane and I are at slightly different stages of life. So I'm 66 now and I say limitless energy physically, you know, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, I'm still quite vibrant. And I'm seeing myself moving into a season of life where I'm pulling back more and going more and more into silence and stillness and solitude. I'm becoming more and more of a monk and a mystic, which I've probably always been all of my life. And so I can feel my energy being pulled back in. And then out of that quiet stillness, I believe new things come, new ideas come, new projects come and so on and so forth. But our organization is expanding and growing and still quite vibrant and moving out into the world. So my dance is how do I continue to do what I'm called to do in our organization while moving more and more into uh, quiet and uh, contemplation and 
you know, hours and hours of meditation and things like that. So I'm in that dance and Diana and I talk about that. And I can't tell you what it's like to have a partner who all she wants to stand for on my behalf is my bliss. Mm-hmm. If my bliss was to say to her, Diane, I'm done with the organization tomorrow, we'd probably have to go through some, you know, a little bit of grief as we end whatever that is. But I would have no doubt that she would just want me to do whatever is mine to do in the world that extends my bliss and gets me more aligned with purpose. So that's one of the things I'm in, Sue, is kind of, I feel like I'm being called to get smaller is the word I use and smaller and smaller so that the voice of consciousness can get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then how do I do that with Diana and with the rest of our team? And that's a constant dialogue. So like I, you know, you know this about me, Sue, I'm in our home in Northern Michigan. I take months off each year, months. There's an organization. And we all take all of August off. <laughs> and, and we take most of, let's say, you know, mid-December to mid-January. Think about companies that shut down basically for a month of August or shut down for a month in the wintertime. And that's because we are committed to living life easefully and being regenerative. Because like you said, we believe in abundance. We believe there's enough money, there's enough time, there's enough stuff in life. So I'm in that dialogue and dance with our team and especially with Diana, you know, as I move into the next era of my life. Beautiful. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Diana, what's one of your updates? Um, I spent the last... You know, five to seven years really in the field, in the laboratory of practicing with organizations. And I'm starting to pull my attention back from me being the one who's doing so much of the consulting and instead finding ways to empower our team to get out there and, um, and consult and get gigs for them. And so I'm loving the sales side of things and spreading the word and networking. I really love to network. And so I'm starting to put my attention more on that side of things. Uh, in, in many ways, I feel like I'll have more impact by having more of us out there and more people out there who want us to come and connect. So um, that's a challenge I'm in of say working in the business versus on the business. And so that's my transition right now. Thank you. That sounds incredibly exciting to me. And one of the things you alluded to earlier in this call is that when you began CLG as a business, you both wondered whether other people could go out in the world and teach this work. And now you, Jim, you mentioned there are about 15 other associates and partners you have in the business. And I know there are far more than that who have wanted to be a part of your business. And I'm just curious, what do you think is the most important signal you pay attention to in making someone a partner in CLG and someone who you endorse and support in bringing this work to the world? Well, (laughs) no surprise that they are living this. (laughs) So, you know, we talk about, we use this funny phrase, we say that to work with us, you have to be the being who can hold the field of transformation. And what we mean by that in simple practical terms is that your very way of being in the world creates transformation. That comes from months and years of practice. So you just take the 15 commitments. You've practiced ending blame and criticism. It's just not part of your life. Or if it's there, it's there briefly. And then you transition it. You've practiced being candid. You've practiced uh, living in appreciation versus entitlement. So anybody who joins our team lives this way. (laughs) It's just so important. There's no way you could do this work for a client company or a coaching client unless you were living this way. And then second, quite frankly, we only have people join our team that we like to play with. Nothing has changed in the 10 years, (laughs) whatever it is. We love to play with people. So it's got to be 
we find that our play gets even better when that person's around. Literally, when we have our team days as a staff, we spend so much time just laughing and playing and doing, you know, we create meaningful stuff and our business is growing like crazy, but we want to enjoy playing with you. So that you're authentically living this stuff, not perfectly. My goodness, we all screw up with this stuff all the time. That's just part of the dance. You fall off the horse, you just get back on, but you're committed to living it. And then we love playing with you and you love playing with us. I'd say and then there's a whole thing around, are you competent and expert? Can you communicate it? Can, can you really do this? But, you know, you can find a lot of people who are pretty good at that. But finding people who really want to live this way and who you enjoy just being in their presence, your energy goes up. That's a little tougher thing to find. Especially people who can allow the world to be as it is to allow individuals to be as they are, to allow feelings to be as they are, to allow Whatever is happening to exist as it is, it takes a tremendous amount of awareness to be able to look at the world and be with the world that way. And when Jim talks about being the being who can hold the field, that's so much of what it is about is just to be able to notice and allow. Diana, in saying that, it feels like a segue to something I just want to acknowledge as being true about our relationship. And that is that I have been completely devoted to the work that you, Jim, and Kelly have been doing since I met you a decade ago. And a couple of years ago, or a few years ago, we decided that I would not formally be a part of the Conscious Leadership Group. And as I just heard you articulate that, I recall that when we made that decision, you said that you wanted to be in right relationship with each other, that we, we you, wanted to be in right relationship with me. And as you just said what you said about accepting the world as it is, I'm really reminded of that decision and how much you set an example for me of living from that mindset, which I also correlate to a mindset of abundance. And what I appreciate about you and about that decision is the extent to which we are still so totally supportive of each other and so aligned in, in what we want the world to be like and how important this work is and how our friendship remains so strong simply by acknowledging the isness of that moment in time. And it feels like a really great example. Oh, it's such a good example for me. And what I would say is I feel like I got in right relationship with you and my love grew, my connection grew, my friendship grew, like everything got better. It wasn't the same. It got better for me because I just found what's the way we collaborate where we, where we both thrive. Thank you for that, setting that example. That's essentially an unforgettable example of that lesson for me. And just to finish today, I'm curious, Diana, what's the most perfect way you imagine the next phase for Conscious Leadership Group over the next five to 10 years. And I understand that you are very committed to being here in this moment. And I'm also curious about your biggest available vision for this organization. Well, I would say, you know, one thing I am just a big fan of is this, this concept of forums, of people getting into groups, of learning groups with others that they can practice with. And I do think the concept of a forum or a cohort that that concept is going to grow a lot, the idea of group learning in general in the world. And I have a vision of CLG having, you know, dozens of forums in major cities all across the country. Um, that's, that's one thing I see. And I love seeing the impact forums make on the individual members and then the companies that they lead. So that's one thing I see. And I also see you know, some of these basic practices just being just a household thing in companies to talk about conscious leadership, that, that these, these skills are as important as any other skills in being really effective. And so that's, however we can make impact on that um, will be thrilling for me. Wonderful. I want to share with the listeners of Real Leaders Podcast that if you go to conscious.is 
look and find out the next events that Conscious Leadership Group is bringing potentially to your town or always, they can always be in your town working with your company or working with you as an individual. They offer these multi-day intensives for leaders and for coaches. They offer company consulting, speaking, forums, everything that we've talked about during this podcast. And I can tell you that the single biggest contributor to my success in my own personal leadership and my own life happiness has been the privilege of meeting Jim and Diana uh, and embarking on this work with them as a playmate. And I am confident that there'll be plenty for you to learn if you follow that path as well. Jim, Diana, thank you so much for joining me today. <laughs> uh, thank you, Sue. You asked you asked to begin before we started recording. What do we want out of this? And I said, I just want to play with you too. So you're you you know just ever since the first moment I met you in your presence, I can feel it. I just have joy and delight. You are such a um, passionate, <laughs> passionate uh, liver of this life, and you know transfer of this consciousness to the world. It was just a blast to be in this with you, let alone with Diana. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I said I wanted from our time together is to have more awareness and I'm just having more and more appreciation for my individual relationships with both of you and, and just more in awe of what I've created and how grateful I am. And wow. Finishing with a big smile. Love to you both. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again for joining us on the Real Leaders Podcast. If you love this episode, we would love it if you would give us a review at iTunes Podcasts. We know it's not an easy process, but it means a great deal to us. Again, this episode is brought to you by the Merge Lane Investment Fund. That's like a merge lane on a highway. Visit us and learn more about the companies we're interested in meeting and if you're one of those companies or if you know one of those companies, we'd love to make a connection. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Real Leaders.